want to do this now? Yes. Good. I would love to do this. Good. Very good. <laughs> Welcome, Welcome to Super Superstitious. The paranormal podcast where things are good. And science-y. And science-y. And we strange. Talk about, yeah, the <laughs> science behind the spooky and strange. Oh, yes. I'm Jake. And I'm Wyatt. And uh, yeah, welcome back, gang. To another week, or perhaps your first week. Yes. Or maybe it's your second, and you forgot that you would listen to us before, and so it seems like the first time, but then you're like, oh yeah, this place. So it's still a welcoming experience to you as well. If it's the third episode you're listening to, though, I would request that you immediately... Shut it off <laughs> and never listen again. Unless you listen to at least one more episode other than this one first and then come back to this one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So this, this could is be your third. fourth, yeah. second, first, or umpteenth. Yes. Uh, With that said, <laughs> this week we are talking about spooky British Isles stuff, if exactly. I'm not mistaken. We are beginning our August around, around the, the world, world. <laughs> thing, and it's starting in the UK. <laughs> Um, slash yeah just generally british isles mm-hmm. because nothing says going around the world to take other people's stories <laughs> like <Quite> britain the, <laughs> yep <laughs> uh do so just out the top do you have anything from the republic of ireland mm, no okay then it is just uk then <laughs> for both of us <laughs> Sorry, Ireland. Yeah. Do you have anything from Northern Ireland? Mmm, Scottish stuff. So I actually kind of wondered if there, I was like, well, we said, well, do the British Isles in general. I wonder if we'll both just choose I, to do Scotland. I leaned in on Isles. <laughs> so we're we talking like Hebrides? The hy- Hybrides. Hybrides. That was the thing I kind <laughs> of mumbled at the end. The Hebrides. There they are. That's the one I was looking for. <laughs> um, cool. So... All right, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Is there anything we want to do before we get into this, I guess, exclusively Scottish good time? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think I have an update today. Mm. And that sound can only mean one thing. Yep. It's time for another Cuban Sonic Attacks update. <laughs> this one brought to our attention by art designer and friend of the show, Lauren, not Coleman Marple. <laughs> A very quick recap regarding the series. Back in 2016 or so, U.S. and Canadian diplomats stationed in Cuba reported very strange high-pitched sounds, which left them ill and disorientated. The events were weird and high-profile enough that the case was seized upon by both media, government, and research bodies alike. Both. Both. (laughs) All striving to determine what the actual cause could have been and whether the ailments claimed by the diplomats were the product of real damage or some kind of mass hysteria. Jake and I have long held that, based on the evidence and the most parsimonious sort of explanation, this was more likely caused by a lot of bugs (laughs) rather than some sort of super advanced weapon. We wagered folks were not ill, so much as stressed out and associating a lot of unhappy feelings with the experience of hearing just so many goddamn cicadas and crickets and stuff. (laughs) Well, perhaps not so says a recent study in the high-profile journal of the American Medical Association. Hmm. As covered in a New York Times article, the 18-author study utilized brain imaging to examine 40 of the diplomats who went through Cicada Apocalypse 2016 (laughs) and emerged with actual brain damage. Oh, Jesus. If you can believe it. Amazingly, the study concludes that the diplomats not only experienced brain trauma, but received damage to their brains that did not resemble the signatures of more familiar brain injuries, Hmm. such as repeated concussions or exposure to blast impact as one might experience in war. 
As quoted in the New York Times article, the main thing we can do with brain imaging is ask whether something happened to the brain. <laughs> said Virginie <laughs> uh, Verma, a professor of radiology at the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine, and lead author of the new report. Quote, and the answer we found is that, yes, it did. <laughs> As written further in the New York Times article, in the new study, the research team focused on those 21 patients and 19 subsequent ones examining brain areas known to support hearing, balance, and motor control. It also measured, since people had described feeling dizzy or right, nauseous, yeah. um, it also measured each individual's volume of gray matter, the overall population of neurons, and of white matter, the connective tissue between the neurons. Gray matter makes up the bulk of the brain's distinct organs specialized to manage functions like vision, hearing, and movement, while white matter comprises the wiring that connects the cells and organs into wider uh, circuits. So sharp deficits in either can compromise brain function. Hmm. Those measures were then compared to an identical battery of brain images from 48 healthy adults uh, representing the same mix of ages, genders, and educational attainment. That's a gentle way of putting it. <laughs> On average... The diplomats had a lower volume of white matter than individuals in the control group. They also showed clear differences in the volume, connectivity, and tissue properties of the cerebellum, which is involved in maintaining balance and lower connectivity among neurons in the auditory and visual spatial areas of the brain. Hmm. The analysis found no difference between the groups in so-called executive control networks, which are involved in thinking and planning. The researchers could not say for certain what these differences mean, except that they are consistent with the symptoms the diplomats have reported. Interesting. The overall pattern was unlike anything found in studies of people with traumatic brain injuries, multiple sclerosis, stroke damage, or other neural disorders. So, tantalizingly, the imaging alone only reveals the effects, not the cause. Right. And other experts in the field are justifiably skeptical of the study's conclusions, given the sample size is just 40 people. Yeah. Um, again, as quoted in the article, quote, it's good work, but there's just not enough here to come to any conclusion, said Dr. Mark Raisinick, a, neuro a neuroscientist at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Raisinick is a, mem a member of the Cuban Academy of Science and has close ties to scientists there who have been skeptical that invisible weapons were involved. <laughs> quote, I think the only reason it's going in JAMA is that it's such a politically charged topic. Yeah. So, still, this is more than enough to keep our own ears to the ground in continuing to follow the Sonic Saga. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That said, I am personally no longer sure. It was just so many bugs ago, Jerp. <laughs> One thing I'm interested in, since they can't tell what caused the differences in their brain, there's not, there are differences there. Is it possible at all that those are differences that just existed before and made them more prone to being sensitive to say bugs for example that makes sense to me that said it's so strange that it would be so consistent across all of them exactly within yeah. that select group i think it'd be yeah. interesting to uh sample more people from the uh, consulate or whatever the the yeah. uh i'm <laughs> at a loss embassy, for word. embassy thank yeah. you um sample more folks there who just didn't report anything and compare yeah. the great matter or and whatever. it's too bad there's no way to compare to these people who did experience stuff from before they experienced stuff to right after through to comparisons see, through time oh is it damage that happened because of that that's that's what i'm saying like you know they, they only sample the people who had something happen to them right right so it's gonna be like for the fact that all of them have this one thing wrong is kind of just like oh well, they, they sampled the people who oh, complained yeah. about something right right so if no one else had anything wrong that's why i'm thinking well what if these 40 people just happen to be people who people who had this one condition in their brain that made them more prone to feeling these certain things in cicada certain conditions. Brain. Cicada brain, yeah. 
and it, they have, they have ha- uh, really bad circadian rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. <laughs> I don't know. It's odd. I hear that. Yeah, very odd and very intriguing. Can't wait to see what comes and next. Yeah, still apparently ongoing uh, mystery. So it was funny. The article actually ended with like. Uh, one way that we could really get better work done here is if more of these kinds of things happen, but it seems like a bad thing to like wish for is basically yeah. the message they ended with. <laughs> They're like, man, we want more data, but also do we? <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. So there you go. Cool. So I think now we are ready to just go to Scotland, I guess. Because <laughs> we've got decided my kilt to on. Bail. Uh, which is really uh, a really odd choice for um, the current weather we have. It's warm and it's a it's, triple layered wool kilt. Well, I mean that's kind of how they are. Like they fold around, so it, it kind of triples up in the front. And uh, but even those layers. Oh, okay. It's easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even more. The traditional eight yard kilt is uh, a pretty warm piece of Highland attire. Oh yeah, you are the kilt pro. I am. Pro. I am but a poser. But we're both Wallaces. It's true. Distant brothers in the clan of. Wallace. <laughs> Wallachi. Wallachi. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have the main Deergo tartan for marching in the band, and I have uh, the Wallace tartan for when I play private gigs. So when I was at, uh, for example, last summer playing uh, for Liz and Brian's wedding up in the White Mountains, I got to wear a Wallace kilt, which was nice to get to do because it's also made to measure compared to the one that's just a rental uniform thing. That's so interesting. Do you, Is there a reason you wear one for one kind of event and one for the other? Well, one is to be a band uniform so we all match, and the other uh, is because yes, I, hey, I want to wear my own thing, guys. Right, I get you now. Very <laughs> yeah. cool. Uh, yes, Scotland. So, uh, what do you mean, I? Scotland? Oh, hi. <laughs> the UK's largest national park is Cairngorms National Park. A gorgeous 4,528 square kilometer, or 1,748 square mile, area in northeastern Scotland that encompasses a solid sampling of all the best of what the Highlands have to offer. Mm. Uh, It includes parts of the council areas of Aberdeenshire, Moray, Highland, Angus, and Perth and Kinross. And as of 2018, it's estimated that the park gets in the ballpark of 1.8 million visitors a year. Damn. Yeah. Um, but enough Wikipedia vacation destination stats. (laughs) Uh, The important part of all this is the mountain range that gives the national park its name, the Cairngorms. Originally called Hmm. Amonarua, the Red Hills, the Cairngorms are now named after one specific mountain in the range, Cairngorm, which itself means blue or green hill. Hmm. So that all makes sense. Yeah, got some different wavelengths of light going on there. (laughs) The range consists of a plateau that's about 1,000 to 1,200 meters above sea level, with the mountains, quote-unquote, being a series of very rounded rolling hills coming up off of that to, on average, 1,300 meters or so. Uh, a lot of these hills are covered in piles of granite boulders, too, or else have clips and drop-offs of granite and boulderiness. Mm. Uh, the area is popular for hiking, camping, and all manner of outdoor fun stuff in the summer, plus skiing and shit in the winter, so good times nice. to be had there yeah. by all. Year-round. Yeah. This being the Scottish Highlands, however, the Cairngorms can be prone to filling up with thick mist, which can badly <laughs> inhibit visibility. Mm-hmm. Because all of the hills are more or less featureless, just big round kind of bumps, um, <laughs> limited visibility can be bad news for hikers who are unfamiliar with the area. Right. There's really no waypoints to find your way around. Right. Um, but there may be even more bad news in store for folks who find themselves on the Cairngorms' highest mountain and the UK's second highest mountain, Ben McDewey. 
Hmm. It has an absolute elevation of 1,309 meters or 4,295 feet. Wow. But only actually rises above the plateau by about 950 meters or 3,120 feet, which is still not at all that shabby. <laughs> only 3,000 <Yeah>. feet above. <laughs> well, compared as far as you know, above oh, yeah. sea level versus how much you're actually going course, up, but it's still, you know, it's still not sizable. a bad hike. Uh, but the actual point here is that Ben McDewey has some spookiness going on. Say what? I shall begin with the 1791 account of poet James Hogg, but a frightening run-in while tending sheep on the mountain. He said, It was a giant black figure at least 30 feet high and equally proportioned and very near me. I was actually struck powerless with astonishment and terror. That's right. We're doing impressions this episode. I will fail if I have to. You, you don't have to. <laughs> Hogg managed to snap out of his shock and run away, leaving his flock to the mercy of Amphelia Moore. Ooh. This was the first recorded sighting of what is known in English as the Big Gray Man of Ben <sighs> McDewey. I like or I guess that. in the case, the Man Gray Big is how it translates the specifically. The Man Gray Big. <laughs> uh, we'll check in again with Hogg and his sheep later. That's a funny farm kind of thing going on. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> he was a poet, though. <laughs> the poet had some sheep. Yeah. For years after that, folks visiting Ben McDewey would find themselves pretty freaked out when alone. Common encounters go like this. You're walking along, and you get the increasingly eerie feeling that you're not the only one there in those mists. Mm. You try to ignore it at first, but more and more, you sense that you're being watched. That's <laughs> when you hear the footsteps. Karen? <laughs> you take off all your clothes. <laughs> uh this is a, I guess that's a reference to the mini-sodes. <laughs> a couple of them now. Yeah, you guys are uh, missing out on jokes. Yeah. Weird ones. Which would you expect any less of us? Um, footsteps, yes. Inaudible at first, the unmistakable crunch, crunch of heavy footfalls begins to sound from behind you, and they get pretty damn loud. Hmm. You look around, but nothing is there except for rocks and, depending on the season, snow. But as you continue, so do the steps. That's when you finally see it. An absolutely towering figure, maybe in the distance or maybe even right on top of you. Mm. You can't make out clear features in the mist. You can't tell if it even has any. You just see darkness and a roughly human shape standing there watching you. Oh boy. It's at this point that the rising panic reaches its zenith and folks who have such an experience typically bolt. Uh, here's a quote from Professor J. Norman Colley, a mountaineer and organic chemistry professor at the University College London in a speech he made in Aberdeen at the 27th Annual General Meeting of the Cairngorm Club in 1925. Huh. So quite a while after Hogg's initial encounter. Mm -hmm. And uh, Professor Colley is uh, English, so I'm not going to bother doing his accent because it's also a longer quote. <laughs> It'll get old if I did this Fair for enough. everybody. Um, <laughs> Scottish accents are more fun to do and uh, better if I'm not doing it for minutes at a time. <laughs> Although it would be fun to hear your accent slowly decay into just me you talking. talking. Yep. <laughs> Uh, I was returning from the cairn on the summit in a mist when I began to think I heard something else than merely the noise of my own footsteps. For every few steps I took, I heard a crunch, and then another crunch as if someone was walking after me, but taking steps three or four times the length of my own. I said to myself, this is all nonsense. I listened and heard it again, but could see nothing in the mist. As I walked on and the eerie crunch, crunch sounded behind me, I was seized with terror and took to my heels staggering blindly among the boulders for four or five miles uh, nearly down to Rothy Mercus Forest. Whatever you make of it, I do not know, but there is something very queer about the top of Ben McDewey, and I will not go back there again myself, I know. That's exciting. Yeah. 
So this particular speech he gave at the meeting of uh, the Karen Gorn Club mm-hmm. really was what kicked off the majority of sightings of Amphelia Moore. Mm. As I say, sightings in kind of air quotes, because in most cases, folks don't actually see the big gray man as often as they feel its presence. Hmm. That said, those who have seen it offer up a variety of descriptions. Many follow the giant shadow man model, but others say that the figure is uh, hairy, huge, with pointed ears, long legs, and finger-like talons on its feet. What? So, (laughs) rather bizarrely, a couple of witnesses claim that the creature wears a top hat, Whenever he appears, the sound of loud, crunching footsteps echo across the mountain. Some hear singing. <laughs> some hear singing, and some others hear ghostly laughter. So I'm fairly a What a crazy thing. Yeah, he's able to walk the line between ghost and cryptid in terms of even just being pinned down as a description. Yeah. Or I dare I say the line between phantom and monster. And none of my sources today are from that website, so don't worry. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I also was almost expecting, for some reason, Phantom and Chicago. <laughs> Go on. What's the line between Phantom and Chicago? <laughs> uh, but here's a little more from... So I had a, an article from uh, thescotsman.com. Um, the gray man is apparently more often felt than physically seen. Climbers experience uncontrolled terror, deep despair, and huge negative energy. Hmm. Not surprisingly, many walkers feel an overwhelming desire to run away. Some have felt themselves pursued by echoing footsteps. Others are hypnotically drawn to the edge of cliffs. Wow. So, yeah, weird, creepy stuff. That's wild. So, I have one more major account here. giving me Squatch vibes. (laughs) I figured as much. Uh, One more account as relayed by Alistair Borthwick in his 1939 book about climbing in Scotland entitled Always a Little Further. I feel like that's a name you don't hear so much anymore. Alistair or Borthwick? Go ahead and put them together. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Borthwick recounts the experience of two climbers. The first was alone, heading over McDewey for Coror on a night when the snow had a hard, crisp crust through which his boots broke at every step. Mm-hmm. He reached the summit, and it was while he was descending the slopes, which fall towards the Larig, that he heard footsteps behind him, footsteps not in the rhythm of his own, but occurring only once for every three steps he took. I felt a queer, crinkly feeling in the back of my neck, he told me, but I said to myself, this is silly. There must be a reason for it. So I stopped, and the footsteps stopped. <laughs> and I sat down and tried to reason it out. I could see nothing. There was a moon about somewhere, but the mist was fairly thick. The only thing I could make of it was that when my boots broke through the snow crust, they made some sort of echo. But then every step should have echoed, not just the regular one and three. I was scared stiff. I got up and walked on, trying hard not to look behind me. I got down all right. The footsteps stopped a thousand feet above the lyric, and I didn't run. If anything had so much as said boo behind me, I might have been down to the car like a streak of lightning. Very good. I enjoyed that. Our Scottish listeners will roll their eyes. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> the second man's experience was roughly similar. He was on McDewey and alone. He heard footsteps. He was climbing in daylight in summer, but so dense was the mist that he was working by compass, and visibility was almost as poor as it would have been at night. The footsteps he heard were made by something or someone trudging up the fine screes which decorate the upper part of the mountain. A thing not extraordinary in itself, though the steps were only a few yards behind him, but exceedingly odd, when the mist suddenly cleared, and he could see no living thing on the mountain, and uh, at that point devoid of cover of any kind. Ooh. Did the footsteps follow yours exactly, I asked him? No, he said. That was a funny thing. They didn't. They were regular, all right, but the queer thing was that they seemed to come once for every two and a half steps I took. He thought it was queerer still when I told him the other man's story. You see... 
He was a long-legged. He was long-legged and six feet tall, and the first man was only five foot seven. Once I was out with a search party on, on McDuie, and on the way down after an unsuccessful day, I asked some of the gamekeepers and stalkers who were there with uh, and stalkers who were there with us what they thought of it all. They worked on McDuie, so hmm. they should know. Mm-hmm. Had they seen on Fearlia Moore? Did he exist, or was it just a silly story? They looked at me for a few seconds, and then one said, "We didn't talk about that." Ooh. Because of the ambiguity about what the gray man actually looks like and does, explanations for what it might be range all over the damn right. place. So there are plenty of folks in the shadow, uh, shadow Man camp, given the entity's kind of affinity for totally disappearing without so much as a bush to duck behind. But there are plenty of others who are nonetheless in the Wyatt, I mean, upright ape camp. <laughs> the article from The Scotsman goes on. Um, this is the article from earlier. What would it live off of up there, though? Yeah, exactly. It's just a bunch of... I mean, there's like lichen and stuff, but like... I, if, yeah lichen and i mean i the elevation seems right if we're accepting this as a species and probably the isolation too but yeah i imagine you're looking at a massive omnivore that would eat rocks i guess in this case (laughs) it's a rock biter from the never-ending story yeah there you go (laughs) so the article from the scotsman says um if this sounds too plausible then you may choose to believe that he is some mystical holy man or even an extraterrestrial more recently, it has been suggested that Ben McDuey is a window area, an interface between two worlds. Mm-hmm. Could the Grey Man be the portal guardian placed among the high Scottish hills to deter intruders? The answer, of course, is yes to all. He is all of them. <laughs> so, what are some actual explanations we might offer up for what we think might be going on here? Mm. Well, I mean, for one, it, it could indeed be just simply echoes. That people are misattributing as being interspaced weirdly with their footsteps. Yeah. It does make sense that just your steps in this kind of interesting space, but kind of going between these curvy hill things, it doesn't seem like it would be that unexpected to have a bunch of echoes happening. No trees to absorb sound, a lot of rock, uh, exposed ledge and stuff. Still, it is strange because these are, particularly in the case of the, um, what was the one guy who gave the talk, the speech at the convention uh, or what have you. Yeah, in 25. You know, seems like a kind of character who, who would have his head screwed on. He's an organic chemistry professor. Quite so. And, and you know, I don't imagine that he would go through life going, oh, Something strange is happening that I can't explain. It's definitely ghosts. It's actually funny. He at some I saw at least one quote saying that he later in life would admit to being very interested in the occult and stuff. Son of a bitch. Yeah. So it's like maybe he maybe he did have his um some little spin on things that were weird. But there's still a lot to be said for being up in the mountains and feeling something really weird going on. Right. Um. In his case, he didn't see anything. He just heard and felt strangeness. Right. Um. So one thing that could be kind of cool, like so there might be just really unique acoustics in those mountains that make the echoes seem just a little different from what you'd hear in other places and stuff, and so it'd be a little bit unexpected. Right. And another thing would be the idea of infrasound, which we've brought up a lot yes, of times as yes, something yes. that can really cause feelings of paranoia and the feeling of being watched. It's just really low frequency sound that can be generated by certain types of vibrations, and it can be generated by wind through certain mm-hmm. valleys and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it could be that on Ben McDuie, there's just the right kind of uh, conditions to make the wind generate infrasound that gives people these really weird feelings when they're Very there. Very cool. I, I, I would buy that. Because not everyone who goes on the mountain feels that way. Just like, I mean, if anyone were just having actual encounter with an actual right. creature or a spook, 
not everyone's going to, no. but still, at the same time, if you're going on the mountain and the wind isn't just right, you might not have these particular exactly. uh, sensations and, and it, stuff. It's important to remember for our listeners that experiencing infrasound is not like, oh, I'm hearing a low rumble and having spooky events happen. It's you don't even know you're hearing it. It's below the range of human, like normal human hearing. But you are you're, you're, you are able to detect it. Your body is level. like, what? Something is fucking weird right now. Yeah. yeah. And that is also attributed to some of the... Uh, different haunting experiences people have had right. in buildings that they can sometimes be, at least in part, caused by infrasound. Mm-hmm. So that's something we will probably talk about probably for the entire duration of this, this show's run. It'll come up again and again because it can actually is- explain a lot of this stuff. Every episode. Every single episode. <laughs> we considered back when we were first talking about the show calling it infrasound. Stitious. <laughs> infrasound stitious. But then we thought that didn't have enough of a ring to it. So, mm-hmm. actually, funnily enough, I was I, I decided on this particular topic when I was looking through the original Google Doc we made. But when we we're about to start the show, mm-hmm. well, what kind of stuff could we talk about? And like listing off different things. One of the things I listed, I was like, oh, what about Amphelia Moore? That's a cool one. I remember that too. Yeah. So I was like, hey, what better time to do that than the Britain episode? Mm-hmm. So, uh, as for people seeing the thing, this is something that we talked about then as well. It's um, is a really cool weird phenomenon called the Brocken Spectre. So this also came up when I was looking into this. Uh, there were some sightings uh, in the Schwarzwald, the Black Forest in Germany. People thinking they're being followed by these shadow figures in the woods. They're hearing mm-hmm. echoing footsteps and seeing these just shadowy figures walking all around them. And uh, yeah, what it is in these cases, it's just the fog catching your shadow on it. The light is just right and there's enough fog and mist that you're your shadow ends up being sort of cast projected onto exactly projected onto this wall. just kind of cloud of water vapor and it can be at any distance away from you so it looked like it's just kind of standing there some distance away and may be gigantic depending on how far away it is and and I, what I angle the sun's you, at. let me tell you i've tried many times you ain't out running that thing <laughs> exactly and uh so <laughs> the most um the most common explanation for what probably is happening with um, sightings of the big gray man is that it is probably a Brocken specter based on just the kind of conditions that happen on that mountain all the time. So to wrap all this up, let's go back to 1791 and revisit the very first recorded witness of Amphelia Moore, mm-hmm. James Hogg. So after his terrifying run in, Hogg knew he would have to go back to get a sheep if there was anything left of them. Assuming also that no weird little men on flying chairs hadn't mutilated them all. He just finds... Yeah, exactly. That's oh another God. Minnesota reference. You guys are missing some hot tent, I tell you. <laughs> um, I was also, for some reason, imagining that he comes back and there's just cords of yarn on the ground. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, then he looks over and they're all just shorn and walking around crazy in a different place. Like, oh, okay. oh, thank God. <laughs> Where all this blood come from? <laughs> um... When he got back to Ben McDwee, Hogg saw the apparition again. But this time, he apparently conducted a little experiment. He reached up and took off his hat. Perfectly in sync, the gray man did the exact <laughs> same. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my god. It's so he's like, like, oh, it's my shadow. Okay. <laughs> that is such 1700 shit, though. Yeah. Like, something slightly strange has occurred. It's a witch. Exactly. The funny thing about it, though, is that he was the first witness... And he debunked it the next day. That is cool. But then people later on just remembered the part where he saw a, scoop, a spooky thing and didn't bother to remember the part where he totally figured it out. Right. 
And then the top in 25, hat. that one guy, uh, yeah, well, I didn't say it was a top hat specifically, but he was wearing a hat. Oh, wait, <laughs> yeah. you said top hat at Someone some other point. Someone earlier said it looked like he was wearing a top hat. So I just probably it together. people wearing any kind of hat yeah. or something, it would then be you know, distorted by the shadow to look like a larger hat or something. Unless was, they're just wearing top hats. It was I don't so know. weird. He was wearing this cool hat that looked like it was a fedora with a feather sticking out of the top <laughs> and maybe a playing card as well. <laughs> Imagine this playing card at the end of the feather. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, also, it turns out that Amphelia Moore is the title of a fucking fantastic reel by Callum Stewart, hmm. which I'll put at the end of this episode. Ooh, cool. Yeah. So that is my account of the big gray man of Ben McDwee. Thank you very much. I enjoy that a ton. Awesome. Before we move on to your story, we've been wanting to acknowledge and thank our patrons for their support in a way that benefits their lives. And uh, to that end, we've updated the Nominal Cults Antagonism Association Analyzer, or NCAAA, device uh, from episode 60 to execute the pander function, the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk. As we all know, this setting will allow us to determine which cryptid our patrons need to be most prepared to avoid, confront, or otherwise befriend. All we need to do is plug this thing into our brains, focus our love and appreciation on just a couple patrons, and we should be able to get this done. All right, here we go. And a quick disclaimer, we are not using the random page function on cryptids.wikia. All right, let's plug these in. Yeah. Mm. Ooh. Oh. Oh. oh my oh. god feels good I can tell if that burning sensation that i think is in my soul is meant to happen or not allow me to focus in on nate from somerville mass nate was one of our first patrons and i'm full of appreciation for this good guy oh dear god sir look out for the bond de gazoo oh or the man of the forest no longer your title nate i'm so sorry to say the Man of the Forest, also known as the Dingizo, the legendary and ancestral spirit of the Moni people in western Papua New Guinea. So I know how much you like to go there, Nate. You're always telling me about how you go there every single week somehow. But while you're there, it's probably worth just being extra cautious of the, the Bondagazoo. So yeah, hope that helps you in your life, Nate. Thank you very much again for your continuing support. I'm going to focus it on... Dave from Boise, Idaho. Another longtime supporter. Yes, who we very much appreciate. I'm going to focus that appreciation energy into finding out how badly you need to watch out for Oshuops. <laughs> Oshuops is a North American version of the Loch Ness Monster that originated oh, from Quebec, Canada. Ooh, it's kind of sort of over your way-ish. Except the opposite side of the continent. From from us. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, it's been sighted since ancient times, but sighted to continue to present day some kind of lake serpent thing. It's about 10 to 60 feet in length, and its color is deep blue or black. So if you find yourself somewhere in the Ashwap Mashawan River, uh, maybe don't swim there. Dave is always telling me how he's swimming there, too. Makes sense that that would be a thing you'd want to do a lot in Quebec specifically, so... Those long road trips. <laughs> so watch out for Ashwaps, David. And, uh, and thank you as well. Thank you very, very much. So, yeah, thank you guys again so much for your support. Should we unplug these things maybe now? It might be a good idea to take the, It does feel like it's, it's burning, like and it's, I'm smelling it burn. That, so I plugged it in. I had to pull it out a lot further than I remember plugging it in. Yeah, so that's something like the to cord keep in got mind. longer. Yeah, something to keep in mind in the future when we do this. But we are going to do this on the regs. So if you're one of our patrons, you may be next. So now let's uh, hear what you have from, I guess, specifically Scotland. Oh, yeah. Allow me to launch right in. 
skulking off the northwest shore of the Scottish Hebrides. <laughs> Hebrides is a craggy and foreboding archipelago often swathed... Archipelago. Archipelago. Often swathed in mist. On clear days, the water becomes aqua blue and the flannan isles, illuminated in sunlight, appear idyllic. Hmm. December 26th, 1900 was one such day, according to J- Captain James Harvey, who had been sent to the Flannan Isles to check in on the three lighthouse keepers of Aylan Moor. Hmm. Aylan Moor, meaning Big Isle, is the largest of the Flannan Islands, despite its modest size of 17 and a half acres, or 7.1 hectares. Actually, we both had stories about big things. Yeah. I'm Fearlia Moor and Island Moor. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just a lot more. In the 7th century, an Irish monk, St. Flannan, had built a chapel on Aylan Moor. Though the ruins of the chapel still stand today, shortly after the structure's consecration, the Irish saint and his flock fled the island, claiming that they were being tormented by magical beings. Mm-hmm. For the following centuries, shepherds who tended to the Aylan Moor's only permanent residence, sheep, mm-hmm. referred to the island as the other country and refused to spend the night there. Wow. But, in spite of Aylan Moore's cursed reputation, the Northern Lighthouse Board set about constructing a lighthouse on the island in 1895 to prevent ships from uh, foundering on its rocky uh, cliffs. Evidently, as shipping traffic increased in the 19th century, the isles proved challenging to navigate in poor light or weather. From 1895 to 1899, a 23-meter lighthouse was laboriously constructed. Wow. Involving the building of landing places, stairs, and railway tracks, in addition to the lighthouse itself. In total, the project would cost 6,914 pounds, equivalent to a little more than 750,000 pounds today. Sheepers. After nearly a year of satisfactory which is like service. Which $3 million. <laughs> which is basically all the money in the world. After nearly a year of satisfactory service, on the 15th of December, 1900, the lighthouse was passed by the American steamer Arctor. <laughs> <laughs> what should we call this boat or this ship? How about Archtor? Rolls right off the tongue. I love it. Or is it Arctor? Maybe it's Arctor. Arctor, maybe. I like Archtor. <laughs> the lighthouse was passed by the American steamer Archtor on a passage from Philadelphia to Leith. The captain noted in the ship's log that the light was not operational in poor weather conditions. When the ship docked in Leith on eight, the 18th of December, the sighting was passed on to the Northern Lighthouse Board. But the relief vessel, the lighthouse tender Hesperus, was unable to set sail as planned on the 20th due to adverse weather. I'm sorry, I'm just so distracted by just Leith just makes me think of the album by the Proclaimers, Sunshine on Leith. It's a really good album. Oh, nice. And the song itself, Sunshine on Leith, is awesome. The whole album is just perfect. Nice. And I'm just thinking of that too. <laughs> so carry on. I'm, I'm the a very over- bopping, fun. <laughs> Right, so the the Hesperus was delayed, did not reach the island until noon on the 26th of December. In spite of the good weather, the Hesperus's captain, James Harvey, felt a sense of foreboding as his ship approached Aylan Moor's notoriously hard-to-navigate shores. Things were just not right. The relief flag had not been raised. All of the usual provision boxes had been left on the landing stage for restocking, and, perhaps most concerning, no one was waiting on the landing for the relief vessel to take them back to shore. Mm. After sounding the ship's whistle and firing a flare to no response, Harvey sent replacement lighthouse keeper James Moore ashore to investigate. 
What Moore found has remained a mystery for over a century. Wow. Even until this very moment. (laughs) Is this the um, story that that new movie is based on? Not much on Wikipedia about it. It says, does it say at the top, does it say anything about if it's based on anything? Welsh maritime thriller. Hmm. So I guess not. I mean, different Celtic. I guess long story short, bad shit happens in lighthouses a lot. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you have to think of how many stories there are of lighthouse keepers hanging themselves or just killing themselves in some way or other or killing their whole families or just, just not good. Just not having not a good fun job, yeah. in general. Unless yeah, that is so, fun. Yeah, so this, so it is not the um, story upon which the movie The Lighthouse was based. So what Moore found is a man mystery. Racing up the stone steps, Moore found the entrance gate to the lighthouse compound and the main building both closed. Hmm. Hoping James Ducat, 43 years old, Donald MacArthur, 40 years old, and young Thomas Marshall, 28 were inside. <laughs> Maybe that was too many words. That's fine. Cool. Likely in the kitchen area, Moore raced into the building. Immediately, he knew something was wrong. The air was heavy with a damp chill as the fireplace had apparently been unlit for days. The hmm. beds were made without evidence of recent use, and the clock had stopped. Searching further, Moore found only that the lamps had been cleaned and refilled, and two of the three keepers' oil-skinned coats, essential during the winter months, were missing. MacArthur's coat rested on its peg. In the kitchen, a half-eaten meal sat on the table, and a nearby chair had been overturned. Shy of this, there was no sign of Ducat, MacArthur, or Marshall. Weird. Moore and three volunteer seamen were left to attend the lighthouse while the Hesperus returned to the mainland. Low count. Captain Harvey sent a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board dated 26 December 1900, stating, A dreadful accident has happened at the Flannans. The three keepers, Ducat Marshall and the Occasional, which is the, um, who's MacArthur, have disappeared from the island. The clocks were stopped and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane. Ducat, MacArthur, and Marshall were some of Island Moore's first lighthouse keepers and, at the time of their disappearance, the sole inhabitants of the island. The disappearance occurred just one year after the lighthouse's completion on December 7th, 1899. Shortly after Moore's herring discovery, the investigations by the remaining crew and the Northern Lighthouse Board Superintendent, Robert Muirhead, turned up strange evidence. Muirhead had originally recruited all three of the missing men and knew them personally. Hmm. While everything was intact in the east landing... Oh, sorry. Oh, I thought you said something, but it was just trucks. I said... (laughs) While everything was intact at the east landing, the west landing showed damage that was, quote, difficult to believe unless actually seen. Iron railings were bent over. The iron railway by the path was wrenched out of its concrete, and a rock weighing more than a ton had been displaced. Wow. On top of the cliff at more than 60 meters or 200 feet above sea level... Turf had been ripped away as far as 10 meters or 33 feet from the cliff edge. Huh. Upon inspecting the landing, Muirhead wrote, From evidence which I was able to procure, I'm satisfied that the men had been on duty up until dinner time on Saturday the 15th of December, that they had gone down to secure a box in which the mooring ropes, landing ropes, etc. were kept, and which was secured in a crevice in the rock about 110 feet or 34 meters, above sea level, and that an extra-large sea had rushed up the face of the rock, had gone above them, and coming down with immense force had swept them completely away, unquote. Hmm. Muirhead also found that a life buoy was missing and wrote, 
It was evident that the force of the sea pouring through the railings had, even at this great height of about 10 feet above the sea level, torn the life buoy off the rope. So this initial evidence, of course, led Muirhead to conclude that the men had tried to stabilize the box of mooring ropes and been swept away by a rogue wave. But not everyone at the Northern Lighthouse board was convinced. Why had none of the bodies washed ashore? Why had one of the men left without his coat in the middle of the bitter Outer Hebrides winter? And how could three experienced seamen all be taken unawares by an approaching wave? I mean, a rogue wave is kind of quite unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it is, I guess, against code that that no one remains in the lighthouse, basically, mm, okay. in these cases. So it would be, it's very strange that all three would depart. Yeah. Examination of the lighthouse logbook also revealed some highly unusual entries. On December 12th, Thomas Marshall wrote of, quote, severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years, unquote. He also reported that James Ducott had been, quote, very quiet, and Donald MacArthur had been crying. MacArthur was a veteran mariner with a reputation for bawling, or sorry, <clears throat> that's hilarious. <laughs> MacArthur was a, re- a veteran mariner with a reputation for brawling, and thus it would be strange for him to be crying in response to a storm. Yeah. Because he's tough. <laughs> exactly. And we're going to give him a really two-dimensional read. <laughs> yep. Men don't cry. That's the moral mm-hmm. of that, I guess. Log entries in the 13th of December, uh, log entries from the 13th of December stated that the storm was still raging and that all three men had been praying. This was also puzzling as all three men were experienced lighthouse keepers who knew they were in a secure structure 150 feet above sea level. I thought you were going to say, who knew there was no God? <laughs> and should have known they were safe inside. Furthermore, there had been no reported storms in the area on the 12th, 13th, and 14th of December, meaning either that the entries documenting the storm were made up or the storm was highly localized. The final log entry was made on the 15th of December, stating simply, quote, storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. Hmm. Naturally, implausible stories regarding the men's fates ensued. I can't imagine why that would be. A sea serpent or giant seabird had carried (laughs) them away. They had arranged for a ship to take them away and start new lives. They had been abducted by foreign spies, or they had met their fate through the malevolent presence of a boat filled with ghosts. (laughs) Other approaches looked to Aelin Moore's uh, mysterious history for answers, offering that the men were captured by the Luceburden, or Luceburdan, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Basically Gaelic little people. Oh. And the blue ones or no? I'm not sure. Okay. And taken to the land of the fairies. So magicked away. Others have since pointed to everything from alien abduction, pirates, or even an attack by the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> because, of course. <laughs> it's kept flying over from yeah. way over in inland Loch Ness. Well, there's tunnels. <laughs> That's right. I forgot. The disappearance was even the subject of a 1977 episode of Doctor Who in which, apparently, a shape-shifting alien contributes to the calamity. So, what could it have been? Uh, My two favorites are also kind of the, I guess, most obvious and parsimonious, which is basically what we've already heard. The storm. Big old storm, water may go splashed dead. Yeah. (laughs) But I'll go through it in painful detail (laughs) now. Um, So, the big unfortunate whoopsie. Subsequent researchers have taken into account the geography of the islands. The coastline of Aelin Moore is deeply indented with narrow gullies called geos. The West Landing, which is situated in just such one geo, terminates in a cave. Is that like a, a mini fjord not formed by glaciers? A fjordlet, yes. In high seas or storms, water would rush into the cave and then explode out again with considerable force. 
It was possible MacArthur may have seen a series of large waves approaching the island and knowing the likely danger to his colleagues, ran down to warn them only to be washed away as well in the violent swell. Thanks. Recent research by James Love discovered that Marshall was has uh, was previously fined five shillings when his equipment was washed away during a huge gale, which is equivalent to like about a thousand dollars today. Just kidding. <laughs> but yes, he had been fined when his equipment was washed away. It is possible in seeking to avoid another fine that he and Ducat tried to secure their equipment during a storm and were swept away as a result. So... This theory also has the advantage of explaining why one set of oil skins remains indoors or remained indoors when it was found. Yeah. So he would just rush out there. Oh my God, we got to help these guys as fast as possible. And hand in hand with that, the rogue wave. It's kind of a no doy for me. Yeah. Based on the firsthand experiences of Walter Aldebert, a keeper of the Flannins uh, from 1953 to 1957, he believed one man may have been washed into the sea, but then his companions who were trying to rescue him were washed away by rogue waves. Basically the same idea, just two followed by one or one followed by two. Really, you know, yeah. pick your, pick your pr- uh, preference. Rogue waves are unusually large waves, if you've never heard of them before, often appearing suddenly and without warning and pack incredible force. As suggested on Wikipedia, a more typical, though still substantial, 12-meter wave, which is about 40 feet or so in height, mm-hmm. um, in the usual linear wave model, quote-unquote, would have a breaking pressure of 6 metric tons per square meter, or Jeez. roughly 8.5 pounds of force per square inch. Plenty to do some damage. Mm-hmm. A rogue wave can dwarf this figure with a breaking pressure of as much as 100 tons oh my god per meter squared so yeah wow nuts so do some damage on top of that they reach immense heights it's just an absolute nightmare fuel for me uh up to and over 30 meters or almost 100 feet in height <sighs> So it's not a stretch to imagine that one of these beasts uh, could have obliterated the Western Landing and the Keepers, possibly with little or any warning, without any. And with that much force, it's it would make more sense why they wouldn't have just washed up. They might have been just swept away so much. They probably washed up somewhere, but yeah. or it could have just been dragged down. Who knows? I don't they know. washed it's, up on the moon last I heard. Yeah, probably. <laughs> That's um, the tides. That makes sense. The, <laughs> yeah. the wave thing, like, did you... Um, see any of the coastal damage last winter after that big storm that just fucked up the coast along around here no um we went up to uh long sands oh maybe yeah short sands or long sands i think it was long sands where somewhere in new york anyway <laughs> and it was cool because the storm had unearthed a um shipwreck from the 18th century oh shit that's so which cool really we went to see it but um i guess people had because people are the worst they started vandalizing it like you know carve their names into it and stuff so that's obnoxious police would come overnight and just buried it in sand again um just so that it'd be protected good move it's gonna <laughs> which, be really confusing for archaeologists in another 300 years <laughs> yep um luckily there's enough like news about it having happened pictures of it so of have, course if the digital record r- remains in follow the eco apocalypse yeah a little bit of it was still unearthed, though. You could still see, so like parts of the end, like the prow and stuff. It was, it was all just kind of the bottom of what was left of the hull. But it was still cool to see, like this wood from way back then. I was like, oh, there's a wow. boat that kind of sunk right there. That's amazing. But that was—I don't know if you've been—have you been to either of those beaches in New York? I don't think so, or if I have, I didn't realize I was there, so okay. I don't have any clear memory of it. There's a little playground thing by the water. It's like you know, during a, high, a normal high tide, it's a good at least a hundred yards from the water mm-hmm. and there's a chain link fence normal height chain link fence maybe seven eight feet tall there were rocks the size of like 
basketballs over the top of the chain link fence in the playground oh my god so the water had like, the storm surge and all of the pavers along it was long since i remember now because they've replaced all the pavers along that sidewalk that travels the entire length of the beach oh, geez. again way up next to the road way away from the beach right all those huge cement pavers just like the ones in front of um the Paul Art Center, like those really big, oh yeah, big yeah, ones, yeah, uh, had been just totally pulled down off of the sidewalk entirely. Oh my god, water can fuck shit up is very the point. much, and very, do very it. much. So as far as the idea of that great big rock being moved on that island or the you know, steel tracks being ripped right. apart, I see no reason why water could not do that because oh, absolutely. it's so powerful. It's impressive to me too, just imagining the height of the seas that must have you know occurred in order to cause that level of damage it's particularly up as they described something like what 200 feet above sea yeah. level where it scrapes the turf away and things mm-hmm. like this oh my god i can only imagine yeah and it's so crazy and if a storm was happening that intense it would make sense that their log entries would be like holy shit holy shit holy shit yeah right exactly like these are experienced guys and this was a storm that was furious and huge enough that even they were rattled yeah um as far as no one else knowing about the storm at the time they reported yeah i mean localized someone said it could have been a localized storm that happens sometimes microbursts and weird i was just gonna say microburst and that was occurring to me as well while reading these sort of sources it's just like i wonder though if that would generate the proper wave height yes stuff. exactly yeah, it, or even it, in the right direction because if i'm not mistaken they it explodes down essentially yeah so um, depending on how hard it exploded down and how long it lasted it could maybe just make a big like wave action right there but yeah the waves might have gone away from where right but if it wasn't right where they were if it was like, been near them and push it towards them absolutely hard to say hard to say indeed but, but a lot of weird awful options all of which could have happened and yeah. then even weirder options that eh, probably didn't happen <laughs> It was a loose burdens from space. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, microbursts. There was actually one that occurred not far from where I grew up on uh, Mount Tom in Western Massachusetts. For any listeners in Western Mass, what up? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's crazy. There is this gorgeous uh, sort of forested mountain hiking area that's sort of in the center of many nice little towns in the valley. And so it sort of rises up there. It's not huge, but it's big enough. And one chunk of forest now, it's still recovering. But it it legit looks like a bomb went off. Wow. Like, it's just completely destroyed. Damn. Um, from a microburst. And, uh, yeah, I would hate to experience that. I mean, it'd be amazing, but also... Just walking along, you hear something, look up, and you're like, huh? Uh. Oh. <laughs> you just get pancaked. Yep. <laughs> Good old weather and water. They'll kill you. <laughs> and that is the take home of my story. <laughs> Thanks. So there you go. Great Britain. <laughs> yeah. So that concludes our look at the British Isles and our first stop on our August Around, around the, the World. world. But before we go, we have a story from a listener. This story comes from Mason in Washington State. Several years ago, during a December in Washington, there was a power outage in my city. My house was out of power, but my friend was hosting a get-together because he has a nice place and a generator. I left his house around 3 a.m. and was driving home when my strange encounter happened. For credibility, I was completely sober, having taken no substances that night. Uh, that night, and had decent enough mental health for a Gen Z high schooler. <laughs> nice. The road that I drive home on was a long hill that you can't see the top of as it is fairly steep. This area is very populated and has neighborhoods on either side of the street. Since the power was still out, none of the streetlights were on, so aside from houses, 
that were using generators, my car's headlights were the only light source. As I crested the top of the hill, my brights illuminated a very young girl walking along the side of the road facing away from me, going in the direction I was driving. Never a good sign. Yeah. I could only see her from the back, but she was very young, probably around six or seven years old if I had to guess. She was wearing only a dress, which was concerning as it was winter and very late at night, and the uh, and she would have been freezing. I slowed way down and rolled down my window, preparing to ask her if she would need me to call someone for her, when, still in the light of my headlights, she completely disappears. Boo. I don't mean that she ran out of sight and, or ducked into a hiding place. I was looking straight at her long enough to internalize how I could best ask her if she needs help without right. seeming like a creep, when suddenly she <laughs> was just gone. Oh my god. It's as if she had just been deleted out of existence before I had time to even ex- uh, recognize I wasn't looking at her anymore. Wow. As soon as this happened, my stomach dropped. It's the same feeling like when you pass a police car and are going only three miles over the limit <laughs> and aren't sure whether or not that counted as speeding. Every time. I know that feeling super <laughs> it's, it's well. It's hard to convey, but it's like, no, that is the perfect description. That I know exactly what that so feeling true. is. so true. I have chronic cop paranoia. So they see the cop like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Because you don't know how much of a fucking stickler they're going to be no, about your speed. And, just, and you don't know if like the dice roll is going to come up against you in that just time. Just wait to see those blue lights turn on and just I like, tell you, God man, damn it. I check my rear view mirror like for the next 45 minutes. Wait till they're out of sight. <laughs> then they're like, okay, I think I'm good. What if they change their mind? They're just like speeding up to try and wait catch Wait a minute. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. So, no, very, very apt description. Yeah. Very, very evocative. But right, that feeling, seeing this girl go, whew. Yes. Um, I went from wanting to help this girl to thinking something was very wrong yep. in an instant. Yep. It's worth noting that the road this was on has a tall fence running along it, so the only way someone could have run out of sight would have been forward in front of my car or behind my car, and my headlights and brake lights revealed that this wasn't the case. Ugh. From every option that I have reasoned out, I could not think of any way she could have gotten out of my sight in the way she did. Mm. I pulled over and called my friend whose house I had just come from and explained to him what I had just seen. He laughed it off, but right before hanging up, he put on a joking demon voice and said, Behind you. Which, while objectively oh. hilarious, probably primed me to believe this was a ghost story. <laughs> I was going to imagine I told the story to anyone and their mother, and it was literally another friend's mother who, after telling the story, gave me more information that makes it a bit more creepy. Oh, no. After telling her this, she asked me if it happened at this one particular avenue and whatever particular cross street Ooh. and well obviously not the real like she just he put in some x and y um obviously not the real names of the street for the story she gave me the exact location of where this had happened oh, when God. i said that it was where it happened she told me that a few years before a woman had killed her daughter and uh there in a murder suicide by letting their basement on fire i looked it up and sure enough it actually happened right there so my theories for this are uh, story are one it was the most uh it was the most fun option i had a paranormal encounter with the ghost of a young girl or right. to a girl who was actually older than I perceived was going on a walk at nighttime at 3 a.m. wearing clothes that were quick to put on. Hmm. When she saw a man in a car pulling up next to her, she rightfully bolted and just didn't, well, I just didn't see her run away. Or three, it was a night. Uh, it was nighttime and dark and my brain was playing extended tricks on me. And over the years, as I tell the story, the details fit more and more with the paranormal outcomes. Nice, nice. The people hearing it respond best to. So all very, I mean, the first one extremely one. reasonable yeah, definitely. considerations. Um, so thanks for reading my story and thanks for making such a great podcast. I think he was listening to the wrong podcast, but thanks anyway. <laughs> um, no, thank you so much no, for thank that you story, very Mason. Much. Very cool. We love to get that's cool. We love to get your stories. Uh, we'd love to hear more from you. So if you have one, or if you have a topic you want us to cover, reach out to contact at superduperstitches and we will so happily 
uh, do that. Now, we do, uh, as far as topics, if you want to suggest them, we definitely have a bag of, here's ideas from listeners that we're definitely going to check out. Yes. The order of when that's going to happen is unclear. We do. Absolutely true. We're planning some of the stuff in advance to try and get right. stuff scheduled. So we may have to find a place to slot you in, but we will because we cool stuff will. is cool stuff that we want to talk about. And we love the engagement. And yeah, again, thank you. That was really cool, really creepy. And, uh, you know. Those would be the three things I would think of as well yes. if I had experienced that. Totally. But it was a ghost. Well, obviously. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so next week we're going to be moving a little bit south from our, our stories this week to the entire continent of Africa. <laughs> and um, yeah, let's just see if we don't pick the same exact spot. <laughs> Entirely possible. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll catch thank you, you very next much. time. And, and, uh, uh, yeah. Bye. Bye.